crunching the numbers. Thanks to Hume Tennis and Community Centre, a mini Melbourne park in Melbourne's north, which has tennis for everyone. Perfect for coaches and players if you're coming from interstate to train and compete. Close to Melbourne Airport with accommodation available. Find out more at humetennis.com.au. Hello and welcome to another episode of Crunching the Numbers. Uh, today I do not have my usual sidekick, Chris Tons. I'm sure he'll be missed. Um, but I do have a special guest today. And uh, we today we have Dan Kiernan. Dan, I'll say hello and then I'll tell the listeners a little bit about you. How are you doing? I'm good, mate. Thank you for, thanks for having me this side of the microphone. It was uh, last time I saw you on this on this call, I was asking the questions to you, so hopefully you'll be kind to me today. Yeah, no problem. Well, thanks for coming on. Uh, as everyone can hear, Dan is from England, I think Northern England, correct, Dan? Yeah, just outside Newcastle, actually. So, which is, it's a big day for Newcastle United because they're playing PSG in the Champions League today. So you can't keep me too long because I've got to okay. go and get myself prepared. Understood. Um, but uh, Dan currently uh, resides, and I believe you've been in Spain, Dan, since 2010. Is that correct? Yeah, it is. Yep, 13, 13 and a half years now. Yeah. And why don't you tell the listeners just a brief outline of what you're doing in Spain and why you moved your family to raise them over there? Sun, beach, clear courts. Yep. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I mean, I think that the, the short story is I, I'm, I'm very passionate about making a difference in people's lives, having a positive influence in people's lives through the vehicle of tennis. And, you know, that's that's what drives me. That's what has always been a, a big driving force when I've reflected on on the good and bad times that I had had as a player and, and so many great people that were involved in my tennis. And I was working in the UK, very happy in the UK, um, nothing against what I was doing in the UK. But at, at that stage of life, me and my wife, married just our first child and we were looking into you know this is maybe the time to to have a life adventure uh we thought of australia uh it's too far uh it's too far away from family and friends as much as we love australia and we had family in spain so popped over to there one summer fell in love with this part of spain sota grande near near marbella malaga down the bottom there looking over africa and uh, always had this this clear vision of developing tennis players is much easier outside, you know, and seeing why the Spanish have done it so well over the years. Um, it was it was a case of, yeah, why not? This is this is the time in our lives to take a little bit of a leap of faith. Um, took a loan out from the bank, put some plans together, and and off we went. And I always say the number one the number one skill that I had was complete naivety. Um, if someone said to me, do it again, I'd be a little bit scared. But I think at 29 years old, I had that kind of freshness, that rawness that meant why not? And yeah, here we are almost 14 years later. Yeah, fantastic. So just about your academy there, it's called Soto Tennis Academy. How many, uh, first of all, how many staff do you currently employ? Oh, lots of them. We have... 19 or 20 staff members now yeah they're harder work than than the players we have 42 full what we would call full-time players which basically means we have ultimate accountability over their development we manage manage their development on and off the court and 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 also manage the teams around them uh we then have a, a younger kind of mini tennis program that currently has about 40 players in and then we're also looking after three or four kind of top 
top pro level players as well who don't spend that much time at the academy but come under under the academy structure so it's a fairly decent size operation now um and yeah lots of lots of dealing with people um it's not the job for someone who doesn't like people that's for sure yeah okay well well done and congrats on that and i applaud your uh your naivety and your uh, courage to, you know, move countries, take your wife with you and uh, and raise a family and, and get a great tennis academy going. I know that uh, I sent one of the players that I work with uh, down there and he had a fantastic experience and was really well looked after. So uh, hats off to you. Um, let's get a little bit into, um, you know, kind of, uh, I'll just introduce you a little bit more. So Dan and I first came across each other, I believe, in college tennis where we played against each other. He was an LSU Tiger and I was a uh, Auburn Tiger. So there was uh, a pretty big rivalry there between our schools in the SEC. Um, but I don't I don't remember any uh, problems we had with each other on the court. So that's uh, that sounds <laughs> good. But, but before that, you played the ITF Junior Circuit. Um, I know you were supported by the LTA and, and had you know bits and pieces of that going on, which may come up in our conversation. And then after college, I know that you played on tour um, and, you know, you got to 150 in doubles and I think 700 odd in singles, which is uh, higher than, than I got, which makes me jealous. But I got you in the doubles rankings. So there you go. Um, and then, you also have a grand slam to your name, so don't be <laughs> don't be playing that card. There's only one jealous person here. <laughs> yeah. So uh, and then obviously you didn't play for you know for too long on tour, and then you went out and obviously got yourself married, and you've gotten into the world. So that's a little bit about your background. And I think one of the things that I really like and respect about you, Dan, is that when I ran into you at Eddie Her many years ago now. Um, you know, we got into conversation, we talked about the mental side of the game. And, and for me, every time you speak, every time I hear you, every time we interact with each other, you are trying to learn something, you want to hear something new, you want to give something as well. So I really enjoy um, our relationship to sort of give and take. And I love that you're curious about all parts of the game. Yes, the forehands and backhands and the volleys are all important but i love the fact that you're you know willing to delve into the mental side and try and you know look for ways to support your players and your staff um, with that stuff and also you know into data and analytics and nutrition and, and and training and so i know that we have similar interests in that way so it's a it's been a pleasure talking to you over over these last couple of decades and i hope we can continue to do it more yeah the, the feeling's very mutual on that as well i see yeah good to hear all right let's get into some of um i wanted to i know that you know, we as coaches can talk about philosophy a lot but I, i'm i'm interested in with your mix of sort of you know growing up in the uk and, and spending a lot of time there but now being in spain for 12 or 13 years how has your philosophy evolved what have you learned and, and where does it currently sit that question would have scared me a few few years ago and I think I think this is quite typical I, I don't know who listens to the podcast but any young coaches out there I think we we feel like we we should stand for something and we feel uh, it can feel a bit confusing I think as you go through your coaching journey you know you know that you have certain opinions now what I did a few years ago is it's a question I, I asked myself a lot and I I try to bring it, I like acronyms and and the reason I like acronyms and this, this might link in a little bit to the numbers that we're going to talk about in a minute, but I like to compartmentalize things. I like to be able to call call on things relatively easily. I have two two acronym, acronyms that I, that I use and, and the first one is 
what's your code and and the code bit for me is what i would say is my philosophy around player development and the c part of code stands for connection and and that's for me the starting point of of everything actually because uh, i think as coaches we can jump into trying to develop players and that's the d part of code but so we'll get there in a minute but but without the connection and and when i say connection that can be a bit of a fluffy word but you know connection to to someone's values connection to somebody's journey where they've come from connection to where they want to go you know connection to the to the family their their upbringing and also that getting the player to connect to you and and what it is that you stand for what your values are what your beliefs are and if you if you're able to get those those connections I think you're halfway there to helping people, if I'm honest. And the 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 second bit is is all, which stands for order. And and if you're able to help players, and you can't do this as a coach if you don't have order to your life, your mind, your your outlook on on the sport. And it's it's why I do think experienced coaches can 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 give so much and somebody like a Louis Kaya, who I've learned so much from over the years, you know, his ability to bring order to people's game is incredible. So, so I guess breaking that down into their identity, what their order of that is, the patterns they like, the players that they like, um, you know, what their game stands for their, their life. You know, I call it the daily bill. Are you paying your daily bill? You know, there's a price to pay for success in anything that we do, you know, and do you have that order in place? And then order of the mind. And, you know, we've we've both been lucky enough to work with Anthony Ross over the years, who who is incredible, you know, but having having those routines in place, you know, having having those key phrases that you're able to commit to uh, point after point and, you know, getting that in order and and and, and knowing where you're aiming to. And I, and I say this to players all the time, you know, the, the job you're giving me right now, it's, it's not easy because it's like a 50,000 piece jigsaw. And it's just been chucked out there and there's all the pieces. If you take the picture away, good luck putting that jigsaw together. You know, that puzzle becomes almost impossible. So as coaches, we have to have a clear order and vision of what we're trying to create. You know, the type of player, the personality of the player. If we have that, that we can then start to develop. And that's the D. And, and and I think a lot of mistakes happen. And, and I just want to clarify this. I think there's a difference between the word develop and improve. You know, I think you can go to a tennis lesson and you can improve. You know, you can improve someone's forehand. You can improve someone's backhand. You can improve someone's mental state. But if you actually want to develop, which is the totality of player, which involves the person, you have to connect and have order first. And then you can set about on the development journey. And then the E is evaluate. And, you know, I remember coaching a player, he went from 1,500 ATP to 300 in six months. And I sat down, I said, why, why do you want me to coach you next year? Let's challenge it. You know, let's really challenge it. Let's not just think that everything's going great and let's just stay along the, along that ride. Let's, let's properly analyze, review, you know, what was good, what was bad, what needs to be better. What are some of the potential pitfalls? And, and and I guess that has really helped me through everything that I've done over the last few years, you know, and obviously you can go off on little tangents at times, but it's helped me have that structure. The second bit is is the values that I've had and then we've brought to the, the academy here in Spain is, is growth. 
and and that very much stands for what it what it says. You know, we're all trying to grow all the time as as coaches, as people, as players, as parents. Um, and then they're then the key values that are at the heart of what we do, which are gratitude, respect, ownership, want the daily bill, and then honesty and humility. And 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 having those in place, I think, really helps start to build the picture a little bit. Um, and, and, and those I think have served me quite well over the last few years. Yeah, really well said, mate. It certainly sounds like you have order with what you're doing there at Soto and in your own mind about what you're trying to achieve and, and how to go about it. So fantastic. And if we get into, if I say data and analytics, what's, uh, you know, in tennis, obviously, what, uh, what, what's your opinion of that? What comes to mind? Love it. Amazing. Why wouldn't we use it? <laughs> you know, like, um, yeah, not nothing but positives. You know, I think, you know, ultimately, it withdraws the emotions, right? And uh, it's it's something you know we we can have we can have opinions. And I've spoken to people over the last few years that have said, no, 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 I've got the eye, I've got the eye, I don't need that. And it's and it and it's nonsense because you know ultimately you you can't argue with the objectiveness of, of of data now yes it can be twisted to to suit to suit your narrative if if you if you choose to do so but i but i think as as coaches in this world it it absolutely is a must i i i think it then boils down to i think there's a real skill in the interpretation of it and then the delivery of it to players you know i, I think that's where the human is needed and that's where the true coaching skills are also needed. Um, you know, I don't think data is there just to be just presented as a bunch of numbers to a player. You know, I think we have to have the right connections in the right order to be able to, to get that, to get that through with, with the players. Um, so that I would say, love it. All of the, all of the above. Um, all I would say is it can be quite challenging to get, and there'll be someone sitting there. So well, it's easy because you can just sit there, sit there and chart. And, you know, I've certainly done a lot of that. I have coaches at the Academy who are brilliant charters of matches. But if I take myself back to, let's say, the US Open a few weeks ago, if I'm charting a match, the players aren't having the same success, you know, because you, you're, you are influencing the match from the side of the court, you know, and your ability to emotionally influence and now tactically influence to a degree. Now that coaches are allowed to speak at the side of the court and feeling that engagement with the player, it doesn't go hand in hand. So the accessibility of it is, is a bit of a challenge or can be a bit of a challenge, I think. Um, however, I think there's absolutely no excuse that all players shouldn't know in very, very basic terms the top line statistics that we need, which is how many times did I hold serve and how many times was I broken? You know, because for me, tennis actually feeds into those two things. I think as tennis players and coaches, we almost need to look at the game as two games. There's service games and there's return games. And and service games... I would call certainly once you get past a certain age, you have a pretty uncompromising identity to how you hold serve, you know, and you might have varying tactics, but ultimately you should have a quite uncompromising intentions and way that you go about that. 
as a return of server, you probably have to have two or three different identities depending on the player that you play. You know, you can't just say I'm an attacking baseliner when you're playing John Isner. No, you're not an attacking baseliner when you're returning John Isner serve. You're a can I get my bloody racket on the ball is your identity when you're playing John Isner. So so in very basic terms, I think that's the starting point and anyone is capable of doing that, you know, and what that brings up. And this is this is something. And if you don't mind me, Hussey, sharing a little story on this, I, I, I coached a player in juniors, Josh Ward Hibbert. Fantastic. 1994, a phenomenal athlete, you know, great kid to work with. Everyone told me he served the fastest ever serve at Junior Wimbledon back in whenever it would be, 2012. I'm sure it's been overtaken now, but it was like a one three four at the time. Everyone said, oh, he serves amazing, serves amazing. But come on, Dan, sort his returns out. And I pulled out the statistics because I call it the 105% rule. If you're winning 105% of your 200% of games or more, you are succeeding at any level, school level through to Grand Slam level. I looked at it the other day. The top the top 20 ATP players are all over 105% for service games plus return games won. The 18, 19, 20 are about 105. Yeah, yeah, yeah Alcaraz is more 117. So I want to know what identity do you have in terms of how you hold? John Isner last time I looked was 96% one year holds 9%, 9% break. That was his one Oh five, you know, Dan Evans, I believe 77 and 28. And I think it tells us so much. Now going back to Joshua Hibbert, he'd actually held serve 73% over the last six months and he'd broken 23. He'd absolutely done his job as a break of serve. You know, it wasn't pretty, but he used his athletic ability and defensive skills to break, but he couldn't hold his serve well enough. So what that gives me as a coach is a red flag. He's not holding serve enough. Why? If now I'm able to get first serve percentages, second serve percentages, first serve points one, second serve points one, put them against some benchmarks, we can start to now find a little red flag where that's falling down. You know, and in that particularly, in another instance, Evan Hoyt, I did the same. At futures level, he was holding serve 92%. Challenger level, it went down to 76%. Why? When I looked at his first serve percentage and first serve points one, it was still round about 75 to 77. So he was doing his job there. But the second serve points went from 56 to 34 over a 10, 12 match period. I now have my absolute area that we need to solve the problem to. That didn't take a data analysis really to do that for me, you know? So, so yes, it would be nice to have more data accessible, but I do think we can get relatively easy data points that can start to pinpoint the key areas of development. Where then we start looking into the video of what's actually happening in Evan's particular case, he stopped playing now, so he won't mind me saying his second serve wasn't effect as effective against the better servers. And what they were doing is they were hitting with better quality and his forehand on ball three was breaking down. You know, he was struggling to receive that deep ball. So that was an area that we started to work on. Unfortunately, I don't have the upside of this story because the pandemic came and then he had three knee operations and unfortunately stopped playing the game. But 
we'll uh, we'll live in a fantasy world and say we did the work and then that upped back to 55% and then he went on and started winning at challenges as well. So I think if as long as you're using it and you're interpreting it the right way, there's even very, very simple data points like that can be really powerful. Yeah, well said, Dan. You've answered a bunch of my questions there in uh, in that answer. I think that's a fantastic um, you know concept for people at home, parents, um, players, coaches to take in. And I've certainly heard you talk about the 105 before, so it's uh, great for you to, to to tell it here. And I think that's fantastic information um, because you know you find out the percentage of hold the percentage of breaks and then what am I better at what am I weaker at and then you can drill down into one of those sides which I think is very simple and, and fantastic advice uh, and the other thing I want to mention is you know I listened to a, a podcast with Magnus Norman probably two years ago or something and and he had one extra phase sort of to you he had serving returning and then you know, rallying basically when the ball's in yeah. play and, and, the, and the influence of the serve or the return has 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 dissipated. Yeah. But we certainly know, and we've talked about it on this podcast before, that, you know, the, the majority of points, and I mean more than 50%, um, are usually in the zero to four range. So the serve and the return is very much involved, um, you know, for 50% plus in almost every match that uh, that people play. Now, there are exceptions like we've talked about before, but yeah, that's no, really cool, mate. I'm I'm just looking at uh, at something else that I wanted to ask you there because you're like I said, you answered a bunch of the questions there. Um, oh, this is a good one. So when I say Australian tennis player, what comes to mind? What's the stereotype of an Australian tennis player? I love to ask this question of uh, of foreigners. The two words that come to mind, and this is this is more specific, probably to the men arrogance and supportive uh so so i i'm often arrogance is maybe harsh but i i think co- certainly confidence sometimes a bit overconfident mm-hmm. um but 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 certainly certainly i think they do a great job of supporting each other i see that across the board um over the years at tournaments and i i know that's naturally when they are away from home so they make a little community and i can i can relate to that to what we do here in Spain in terms of their games I I would forward thinking jumped into my mind um you know quite for I think that jumps to mind to mind as an as a as an Aussie player I can't get Max Purcell out of my out of my mind and when I think of a typical quite typical Aussie in terms of his luck as well I know he's had the mullet and he's had the he's had the mustache over the years which is your yeah, kind of Aussie cricketer look, um, <laughs> you know. But yeah, and, and 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 natural. I think forward thinking and natural. Again, if I take a Purcell, I think he's genuinely one of the most natural tennis players I've seen. You know, he's he's a beautiful player to watch. Obviously, Kyrgios, Barty. You know, you 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 look at these players. I, I Leighton Hewitt almost is a little bit against that, but you know, I don't think he's been as typical of an Aussie as. As maybe some of those some of those other players. I got my next one. Okay, British tennis player. I won't be happy with me saying entitled, but I've uh, I've jumped on the I've jumped on the arrogant for for the Aussies. So I need to <laughs> so I need to balance it out. Yeah. So I do. I think entitled. I think entitlement is is a is a is a real issue in in British tennis. Closed. I don't see the Brits being that open with. With the rest of the world, I think they they can be quite closed off. The type of player, oh my god, the type. I mean, the type of player I think is is so varied now. 
You know, I think I don't think there's a typical, you know, typical British way anymore. I think certainly back in my day there was. You know, again we were we were quite you know forward serve volleyers that that type of game. But I think I I think the game style wise I think very very varied actually. Yeah, no, that's fine. That's all good. I, yeah. I love to, uh, yeah, I love to hear that stuff and 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 kind of compare. And um, I love your, I love your honesty. Um, and I think there's there's valid and uh, validity and merit to both. Um, I did want to just quickly mention. I think Leighton Hewitt's skill was undervalued um, throughout his career. Watching him play doubles, watching him lob, watching yeah. him drop shot, watching his hands. He's much. He's very much known as a counter puncher and a runner, but I think his skill was extremely high. His um, backhand lob was a disgusting shot when you play. <laughs> yeah. You didn't. You didn't see it come, but it flipping when it did come, you had no chance. You know, it was. Yeah. It was. A, it was a thing of beauty. Before we go, I did want to mention that you run an incredible podcast, and in fact, not just in my mind, but it's at the at the Sports Podcast Awards. You have won the best tennis podcast the past two years, and it's called. Control the controllables. I've probably listened to 75% of them. Um, I think they're incredible from all walks of tennis. And, um, you know, you have uh, people, coaches from other parts of, of of different sports as well. I can certainly remember uh, Valerie Condos-Fields, the uh, gymnastics coach from, I think it was UCLA, correct? Yeah, correct. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I would encourage anyone who is looking for the best tennis podcast um, outside of our platform here at the first serve, of course, um, to to look up control the controllables, and just quickly, how many episodes have you now run of that? Uh, two were uh, two hundred and three currently. Two hundred and three, and off the top of your head, I know it's a difficult question, but name three or four, the first three or four that come to mind that you loved. Episode seventy four would jump to mind. That was a. Uh... <laughs> That was a former Wimbledon champion doubles player who who speaks incredibly well about about the game. So you you, you guys need to check that one out first. Um, you mentioned Valerie Condos Field episode sixty two. It, it it does still jump to my mind as one of the first whenever anyone asks me that question. You know, she an incredible woman, great story. Um, you know, how she, she actually changed her philosophies, you know, went into coach gymnastics thinking she had to be a coach who was very hard and then, and, and then changed into actually being more empathetic. And this whole concept of, you know, winning doesn't necessarily mean that you're successful. Um, so that was quite impact, really impactful for me. I have to say episode 200 because Sir Andy Murray is a big hero of mine, even though I've played against him for what he's done for British tennis, but also for what he's done for tennis. And he doesn't do podcasts, you know, and he came on and gave me an hour and a half of his time, spoke beautifully, spoke honestly, insightfully. And yeah, that was a real treat for me. And and I believe everyone that listened. And then my last one, and I, I think it was you, Hussey, that put me in touch with with Gully, Tom Gullickson and, and episode 110. And again, it's the one, it just, it puts smile on my face, but every time I listen, I also have a tear in my eye. He connected on a, on an emotional level, the, the best storyteller I've come across, you know, and I've been fortunate to, to have him on the phone a couple of times that he always tells a story and he's absolutely brilliant. So uh, those not to do a disservice to the, the other 199, because I could go on forever, 
talking about how amazing the guests are. And I feel very fortunate to have had that time with so many, but those would be four real standouts. Absolutely. And before we sign off, um, last thing, where will Newcastle finish in the Premiership this year? I've been honest throughout this chat, Hussey. So uh, as much as I'd love to say number one, it's not going to happen yet. You know, for any football, soccer fans out there, you know, my beloved Newcastle United have come from the, the doldrums of just just nowhere, you know, and they've they've had an injection of money. They finished fourth in the league last year. I think finishing fourth would be like finishing first for them. Um, something tells me it might be more fifth or sixth. Uh, but if they were able to finish fourth, that would be that would be their winning Wimbledon this year, uh, going into consolidating into the next few seasons. Okay, and I lied about the last question because now I've got to ask you about my team who have finally got an Australian manager. Excellent. So where are they going to finish the the Tottenham Hotspur? And I and I have to say it, on the Australian bit, I I, I like to think of myself in my older age as someone who's quite fair. Um, my younger age was just full of passion and I wouldn't give any time for anybody else's team. I would have told you Newcastle would finish first and screw the rest of them. I absolutely love Ange, you know, and if it, I I think he philosophically, the way he speaks, the way he his outlook on sport, I think he's a one that I certainly would love some time with because I, I believe as tennis coaches, we can, we can learn so much for, from him. Um, and I think it also shows the impact that a that a great coach can have, you know, and 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 he certainly impacted them. I I think they're going to be in a battle with Newcastle. I think f- between fourth and sixth, and and I think it'll I think it'll probably boil down to Newcastle or Spurs on on who finishes in the top four. Maybe Spurs will pip us because they don't have the the Champions League that's going to get in their way like it might do a little bit for Newcastle. All right, Dan, I appreciate connecting with you more and more over the years off um, offline, but thanks for coming on and, and sharing some of your insights um, on this podcast. I appreciate your time and, uh, and and I'm sure the listeners have too. So thanks very much. Take care, bro. Thanks, Ossie. And I, I just want to also say you've said some very kind words, which are, which are much appreciated, but you know, you are one of the absolute good guys in this sport. And 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 I have taken one hell of a lot from you over the years as well. You know, I love, I love speaking to you about tennis. You're you're very intelligent, thoughtful on it all. I also want to say a massive, massive thank you for all of your support. You know, during the U.S. Open, where you know your support behind the scenes, getting videos, getting data to us, led to Gabby Dabrowski and Aaron Routliff winning the US Open and and you had a big part to play in that behind the scenes. So a big, big thank you for that. And let's keep chatting. Thank you. Good on you, Dan. Cheers, mate. Thank you. The First Serve is your home of tennis at thefirstserve.com.au. Log on to find out all the details of our live radio show, other podcasts, read weekly features by our team of writers and follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and subscribe to our YouTube channel.